you. In time of worship, baptisms are always an exciting and wonderful part of, of worship, our worship life together. There's an outline sheet that's uh, part of your uh, worship folder if you'd like to use that as we move through this message. I also want to remind us, uh, just as we're coming together and, and preparing our hearts this way, there will be another time of worship this afternoon at 4 o'clock. It's a celebration of the life of, of Ron Lind, one of our beloved members and uh, just dear to so many of us. He uh, uh, went to be with the Lord and we're excited and, and so happy for him. But it was so sudden for us to hear that. It was such a shock. And uh, so we will have a, a time of celebration of, for his life and with his, uh, his family today here at 4 o'clock. Every one of us has a deep need that is foundational to all the others of our life. No matter who we are, how old we are, from the youngest here to the oldest, and it really doesn't matter uh, what century we could talk about in human life, from the earliest, earliest of all people to those that will still be here when Jesus returns, everyone, everyone, every human being, every one of us has a deep need that's foundational to all the others of our life, one that until it's met will make all our struggles and all our difficulties even more intense. You wonder what that need is? Well, we all have times of insecurity, self-doubt. Is that a need that we need to take a look at this morning? Need to deal with those? Anxiety is a stranger to none of us in one way or another. Fears, frustrations track us. Fear within our own inner battles. Fear that launches out into the chaos of the world these days. We've all experienced depression at some point. Is our greatest need to be free of these? Maybe it's to deal with our loneliness or memories of the past that can haunt us or unfulfilled dreams for the future. Maybe it's broken relationships or a moral failure somewhere, a worry, conflict. What's your greatest need? What's the foundational need that is under all, all the rest? Here it is. The greatest need beneath all needs is to come under the authority of Jesus Christ. To come under his power and his authority. To place life under his direction and guidance. Why is the world the way it is? We can ask all kinds of questions that begin to wonder and to come to grips with that foundational need. To recognize the authority for our lives makes us deal with questions like, why is the, way, the world the way it is? Or how can the world be made right? Or who's in charge of me? Questions that range all the way from the world's aspects down to the very basic parts of who you and I are. Who's in charge of me? Who's going to run my life? Who do I look to for ultimate guidance? Who will determine my destiny, my future? When I was about 10 or 11, my, my parents agreed to house a boy whose father was interviewing for a job in our town. 
he was about my age, and everybody thought that it might be helpful for him to have somebody to play with. His family was in over the weekend, and rather than just being stuck in a motel, they thought, hey, let's let him have somebody to just kind of run around with, be, be with, fun with, and so on. First night, he walked in. He had his suitcase. He walked in through the door. He stood there. He looked around, and he said, I just have two questions. This is a kid 10 years old. I have two questions. Where do I sleep, and when's breakfast? <laughs> Kenny and I, my younger brother, Kenny and I, did at that point, did not know the meaning of the word audacity. <laughs> But he was an audacious kid. My dad, though, through that weekend, let him know that he was not in charge. And that was fine with Kenny and me. (laughs) It all had to do with a question of authority. And it's a basic question for all of us. Who's in charge of my life? Now, our scripture that was just read a moment ago, highlights a number of contrasts that focus on the authority of Jesus. These verses from John chapter 18 are just a study in contrasts. First of all, we see Judas and the other disciples. Now, these are the last hours of this man named Judas, a man who resisted Jesus' authority. Let's first note that he was from Kerioth. Judas Iscariot. Kerioth was a village in southern Judea. So he wasn't from Galilee like the rest of the disciples. He wasn't a Galilean. And some have suggested that the reason he was often at odds and resisted and opposed Jesus was that from the beginning he just somehow didn't belong. He wasn't a part of any kind of inner circle. It is a contrast. But there's so much more to it than that. Judas, this petulant, impatient man, one who burned with patriotism, is more likely, more than likely, a part of an insurrectionist group called the Zealots. They hated the Roman occupying forces with a passion. And it's probably that Judas believed that if Jesus could be supported but manipulated, eventually it would precipitate the crisis that would caused the forces of Israel to come together to begin to oppose all the legions of Rome. And then in that, they would win out and win over against Rome. If, if, if Judas believed that he could actually force the Messiah's hand, then he could say, the Messiah would say, I am the Messiah. The legions of heaven, the very power of God, would come to his aid, and they'd be victorious. Now, much of that's speculation. There is so much to wonder about, about this guy. But we do know this. We're told that he was a thief. Look at verse 6, chapter 12. He was a thief. As a keeper of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Talk about audacious, stealing from Jesus, the other disciples, his friends. He also refused Jesus' authority. In the upper room that night, when Jesus announced that one of the disciples would betray him, there's all kinds of mixture of of shock and dismay, but not to the same degree with Judas. Look at how Matthew tells us here. They're sad, began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. The others called Jesus Lord. 
not Judas. With him, Jesus is simply a teacher. It's not the same recognition of Jesus' authority. At some point, Judas went to the high priest Caiaphas. He made a deal for 30 pieces of silver. The number there is really irrelevant to the case. What if his betrayal was based on a total misunderstanding of why Jesus had come? He didn't believe that there was anything in him for, him, for Jesus to have to die. All talk of the cross was a, an enigma, a kind of puzzle to Judas. He wanted no part of that kind of radical redemption in rescuing the world. What he wanted was a militaristic king messiah. A messiah who would meet his purposes, his ends. And into that kind of category comes all the strugglers, you and me included, who want God for our purposes and easy answers to our needs. Help for our struggles Quick solution for all our problems. Answer my prayer, Jesus, and then I'll follow you. Do it this way, Jesus, and then you can have my allegiance. Answer it under this time frame and this way, my direction, and then I'll believe or believe more. Sometimes, we have to admit it, we're just like Judas. We'll join Jesus if we can get all that he's got to give, just as long as we don't have to give him authority. Then we're reminded all over again, one way or another, that Jesus is not a pawn to be used for our purposes. That night in the upper room, at the Last Supper with all the disciples, when Jesus said, tonight one of you is going to betray me, Judas suddenly knew that Jesus understood everything that he'd been conniving, everything that he'd been planning in collusion with the Jewish authorities. How could he have known? How could Jesus know? And yet he did know. John records the event. It's in verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And then this little sentence, and it was night. Now, John's been explaining <clears throat> all through these, these chapters, these verses. We've looked at Jesus' prayer in the upper room with the disciples. John has let us know early on that this is a Passover meal. It's at night. And yet he writes this on purpose, and it was night. The interesting thing is that the Passover is held during a full moon, and Jerusalem is bathed in moonlight. It was night when Judas left the room, but it also seems that the implication here is that the darkness was somehow in Judas. It engulfed him. He would not accept Jesus' authority. And it's as though John is writing here, the darkness, the night was in his soul. Jesus took his disciples, he led them out of the upper room, and he led them down into the Kidron Valley. And here we see another contrast, the Kidron Brook and the Lamb of God. Now, the, I want you to imagine with me the Temple Mount, the Temple sat on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, and down to the south, along that, ran the Kidron Brook. It was the Kidron Valley, and it ran this way, and then it ran over to the east and kind of curved, and then at the bottom of that curve 
the Temple Mount here, the Kedron Brook running, and then taking a curve to the north. At the bottom right there is the Garden of Gethsemane. And then from that comes up the Mount of Olives. So there's the Mount of Olives here leading down to the Garden of Gethsemane and its base, the Kedron Brook running along the southern part of that Temple Mount area. Jesus and the disciples, the upper room, were probably over here to the west, just to the west. They come down out of the upper room. They make their way down into the Kedron Valley, the Kedron Brook flowing. Now, in all of this, in all of this, recognize and remember that the full moon is shining. Jesus knew what he would have to do. Interesting fact of history as well is that all those Passover lambs that were slain there in the sacrifices in the temple, it's said that during Passover feast time, up to as many as 200,000 lambs could be slain. It's an in incredibly large number of sacrifices taking place. Up to 200,000 lambs being slain. Now, what occurred was that the, in that in that temple, there was a system of conduits that led from the high altar down into the Kedron Valley. And so all that blood, the blood from all those sacrificial lambs, ran into that Kedron brook. Through that conduit that night, from the high altar in the temple, down into that Kedron Valley, the blood of those sacrificial lambs flowed into that Kedron brook. So when Jesus went across that valley that night, with the moon high, the moon high, he must have seen that flowing blood, the creek running high and red with sacrifice. Stepping across it, don't you suppose, don't you suppose he was thinking of what lay ahead for him? It had been declared the beginning of his mystery, first part of John's gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The shedding of his own blood as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God dying for the sin of the world, a once never to be repeated substitutionary sacrifice for the sake of the world and for the sake of all of us, you and me. The Apostle Paul put it clearly, he writes to Timothy, the saying is true, worthy of full acceptance, Christ Jesus died for sinners. Well, Jesus went to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. As we've said, it's at the base of the Mount of Olives. At the bottom, Mount of Olives to the east, and then the Temple Mount up to the west. Garden of Gethsemane there at the valley. The word means olive press. The base of the Mount of Olives, filled with olive trees. John doesn't mention this. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus prayed there in agony, struggling with what he knew lay ahead. Father, if there's any way, if it be your will, let this pass, this cup, let this whole ordeal, let it pass from me. He knew what lay ahead. It was a horrendous battle of obedience that he fought there. We have no idea of the fear and the tension, the stress of the knowledge of the burden of sin. And again, what we see is a study of contrasts there are two gardens that we really think about here, the Garden of Eden, the first one, the Garden of Eden, and now the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam lived in a garden that was full of God's delight. There, that first garden, part of all the good creation, not yet fallen. Adam was a part 
of a garden that was full of God's delight. Jesus entered a garden that was awash in human fear. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve made the mistake of listening to Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus spent time talking with his father. In Eden, Adam fell in defeat. In Gethsemane, Jesus stood up as conqueror. In Eden, Adam took the the fruit of sin from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup of salvation from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Jesus boldly presented himself. In Adam, we're lost. In Christ, we find life. Do you see it? Do you sense it? The the contrasts that are happening within these verses of John's gospel here. And then what we see is a final contrast between Jesus' authority of life that it conquers sin and death. When he stood up from the prayer, he could look across the valley and he could see torches blazing. He heard the clattering of armor, the tread of feet, and he saw the immensity the immensity of the army. Look at verse 3. He came to the grove guiding a detachment. As Spencer said, that is a telling word there that John uses. A detachment of soldiers. Some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. John calls it detachment. It can be translated as band. The Greek word here is speira. S-P-E-I-R-A. Speira. It could mean up to 240 cavalry and 760 infantry. It's an incredibly large number of of armed soldiers that are represented in that word. Now, we don't need to suppose that every member of the cohort was called out that night, but it was a sufficiently large enough detachment to warrant the presence of the commanding officer because John tells us, again, it's just a little piece of verse 12, he says the commander was there. The commander did not go out for any kind of minute little skirmish. The commander was there with a detachment. Possibly up to 200 to 600 soldiers, including the forces of the chief priest. Terrifically large contingent. And in that, We see the fear. We realize the fear that was in them. Now, Judas may have believed that he had gathered the forces that would be equal to begin the battle with the forces of heaven and the Messiah's revolution would begin. And Judas would be at the right hand of power for seeing all this take place first. When they arrived in the garden, look at verses 4 to 6 here, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, all, that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. Now, we, when we read it, it gets translated, I am he. That word he is not in the Greek. It's not there. It just simply says, I am. I am, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. If Jesus had just said, yeah, I'm the one you're looking for, 
Why in the world would that cause anybody to fall back and fall all over themselves backwards? It doesn't make sense. Something is happening here. With all the intensity of his prayer, with his own battle with fear and evil having been won, the commitment of all that would mean in the hours that, lies, that, that lied ahead, with knowledge of what it meant to be Savior of the world, he said, I am. The word he is not there. It meant more than just a simple declaration of human identity. It conveyed the unmistakable authority of God. The words were those that God spoke to Moses centuries before on the mountain when Moses had asked God's name and God had replied, tell them, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. Moses is saying, who shall I say sent me when I go before Pharaoh to, to lead your people to freedom, bondage in Egypt? Tell Pharaoh, I am. It revealed God's essential nature. It meant he who will make things happen. And there in the garden, Jesus' words are the same, the same meaning, the same intent. Lord of creation, Lord of heaven and earth, I am the glory of God and all his excellence, all of his majesty, all of his power, there in time and space in that word. No wonder they fell back. No wonder they fell back. So powerful is his word that Judas, the temple police, police the infantry, the soldiers, all fell back with the force of it. They're helpless to even stand before Jesus, much less seize him. And we realize there that he is not a victim. He's not a helpless victim of a rabble mob or the victim of intense cruelty or a cohort of soldiers. This is no victim here. This is Jesus declaring that he is victor, the authority of God in our midst. John clearly intends for us to reflect and marvel at the implication of all this. If Jesus could drive a cohort of seasoned soldiers to the ground by the mere projection of his deity, his word, what could have hindered him from escaping everything that led to the cross? These verses confront us with the great contrast, the revelation of the glory and the power of Jesus at the very moment of his arrest in humility in Gethsemane. Time and time again, what we see through Scripture is this study of contrast, this strange blending of opposites. Paul gets at it in Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Polar opposite. Look at it again. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Opposites. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign in righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does this mean to us? Everything that Jesus offers us, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, peace, God's spirit, joy, hope, forgiveness of the past, life now, fulfillment for our future, all these come at that one crucial point 
of accepting the authority of Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Every one of us here this morning, every one of us here has one thing in common. Whether you're just beginning to inquire about the faith and you've got all kinds of questions, or you're resisting at this point, you're resisting putting faith in him, you're saying, well, I don't know. I don't know about all this. Just starting out, resisting, or have been a part of it for years. The issue is this. Have I truly recognized the need, my need, to turn my life, my need for forgiveness, my need of a Savior, my need to be brought into relationship with my Creator, have I submitted to the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ? Have I said, Lord Jesus, you are number one. Everything else in my life radiates out from you. You're the hub of the wheel of my life. All the spokes of my wheel radiate out from you. You are the center and the core. Have I submitted to the ultimate authority of Jesus? Because until we answer that question, all the other needs are just going to rumble around inside us and just churn. Jesus alone is worthy of our highest admiration. He alone is worthy of our trust, our devotion, our loving service. He alone has ultimate right to command our lives. No doors closed to him. Every thought, every action, every attitude captive to him until he permeates the totality of our being, our daily life, extending his power into our thought life, every relationship, our home life, neighborhood, school, business life, our leisure, our sex life, financial life, our life as his church, our relationships here with one another. The words we speak here, the actions we undertake, the, the attitudes that we have, every part and piece from day one through the week to the last minute of the last hour of the week, every part, every piece, every texture, thought, action, and attitude under his authority. Think of it. Think of it. Here it is. After, after 20 centuries, we still baptize in his name. You've witnessed it today. Following his command, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why do we say that? Because Jesus commanded us to. When we come to be baptized and begin that relationship, we baptize in his name. When love and marriage come between a man and woman, it's his blessing we ask. When this life ends, it's beneath his cross that we lay our dead. We'll come together as a congregation, friends and family at four today, thanking the Lord for the life of our brother Ron Lind. It's in his message of eternal hope that we find comfort, power, for staying steady through it all. Over and over, he has broken the chains of sin. Over and over, 
He has set people free. He's put energy and victory into wasted lives. He's put life into souls that were rotting in sin. Down through the ages, ages, his followers have been ready to declare that every virtue, every victory, is not the result of their own resolve or resources, but due to the saving might of Jesus Christ alone. That's life in perspective. That's life as it's meant to be. When God first thought of you, somehow in the councils of heaven, when God first thought of you, he thought of you personally, and he thought of you in light of the blessing of Jesus in your life. That's life in perspective. Life as it's meant to be. Life under his authority. And that is the great issue for every one of us here this morning. Every one of us. That is the one great need beneath all the others. What have I done? What am I doing with Jesus? His life, his power, his authority in my life. As we reflect on this word about what Jesus has done for us and the life that is in him, we come to the table. And as we come, we remember that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, the night that we just read about, we remember that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus as Savior is welcome at the table here at South Suburban. Simply come and tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and as you make your way back to your seats, you can give your tithes and offerings. That's just a part of our worship this morning. As we come, finally, we proclaim the good news of the gospel, which is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Will you come? Okay. 
So baby 
Reflect on this word this morning, Lord, of what you have done on our behalf, Lord, that we can find life. God, and we just, I just pray for us, Lord, that when we walk out of here, that this would not just be a thing we sat through this morning, but an experience with you that we carry, God, into our day. God, that the rest of our day, the rest of our lives can be centered around you and our experience with you and our relationship with you because of the cross. God, thank you for what you've done this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your worship. Pray all this in the name of your son. Everybody said, Amen. You may have a seat. Just a couple of quick announcements before we go. First of all, uh, as I mentioned before, it is that time of year. Fall is near. I hate to say it. Although fall around here is nice, it lasts for two weeks, but it's a nice two weeks. <laughs> but, um, uh, our uh, kids' programming starts again September 14th as part of our fall kickoff.